In April, the IRS published correcting amendments to the final regulations on qualified opportunity funds. What are the key changes that Opportunity Zone participants need to be aware of? Find out next. Welcome to another exciting episode of the Opportunity Zones podcast, the weekly show where we interview Opportunity Zones professionals and experts from fund managers to tax advisors, from real estate developers to venture capitalists. If it impacts Opportunity Zones or the Opportunity Funds industry, we cover it here on the Opportunity Zones podcast. Welcome to the Opportunity Zones podcast. I'm your host, Jimmy Atkinson, and today I'm surrounded by lawyers. Jessica Malay is partner and chair of New York City-based Duval and Stackenfeld's Tax Practice Group. Jessica specializes in tax, real estate, and Opportunity Zone law, and she joins us today from her home office in Long Island City, Queens, New York. Ashley Tyson is also with us today. He is a business attorney with extensive real estate experience. To date, he has helped form over 100 Opportunity Zone entities, and he is my partner and co-founder of OZ Pros. And today, Ashley joins us from his home office in Charlotte, North Carolina. Jessica and Ashley, you've both been on the show before, so thank you both so much for joining me again today. Welcome back to the podcast. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for having us, Jimmy. It's always a pleasure to be on and to talk to your listeners. Yeah, absolutely. And today we've got a good one, rather timely episode. Today, just a few weeks ago, back in April, the IRS published correcting amendments to the final regulation. So that's going to be the topic of today's show. Uh, Jessica, I'll turn to you first. What are these correcting amendments? I think a lot of people, when we received the final regulations back in December of 2019, we were kind of thinking, okay, this is it. These are the final regulations. And now a few months later, the IRS has published some correcting amendments, which have actually tweaked the regulations in some areas. So answer this question for me. What, what are these exactly, and, and how do they relate to the, to the final regs? Sure. So again, as most of your listeners are probably aware, we did get final regulations from Treasury on the Opportunity Zone program back in December of 2019. Even when things are final, <laughs> they're never really quite done, right? So the, it's certainly not unusual for Treasury to, to make small tweaks after the fact um, in terms of you know, fixing mistakes that they've made in the, in the process. These correcting amendments, while they, they do fix some, some just kind of typos and nits and cross-references that didn't work and, and things of that nature, they do contain a few substantive changes, which Ashley and I will, will go over. Um, and one of the things that they, I think took the tax community and the Opportunity Zone community by surprise is the fact that there were some pretty significant changes in these amendments. But the amendments are intended to be kind of, again, corrections to these final regulations. So one of the things that I think has, has frustrated a number of people when they try to look at this is first, if you try and read the amendments on their own, it's incredibly difficult to parse. They basically say, you know, remove subsection D2 and add a new section I cap F. And so it, it's really hard to, to sort of read them on their own. The other aspect of the amendments that is pretty frustrating is that there was no preamble. There was no explanation in terms of why they changed the things that they changed. They just dropped and you have this new regulatory language. So that's left a lot of practitioners scratching their heads uh, about a few of the changes. And I, we, we may even see some further clarification uh, on at least one of these issues in particular. Uh, I, I hope that we do, but um, I know we'll get to that in a second. So. 
Yeah, so I, I, I want to bring that up now, actually. I kind of want the, the bulk of this episode to be a back and forth with you and Ashley discussing uh, maybe maybe three, four, or five of the of the biggest effects of the correcting amendments that were issued in April. So uh, Jessica and Ashley, maybe you can kind of walk us through those one at a time. What what really stuck out for you in terms of the, the some of the biggest uh, changes here? All right. So the three that I, I definitely want to make sure that we hit, and then if we have time, we can do a few others. The first is some changes to the effective date provisions, just to give everybody a sense of what's coming. The second will be a change to some provisions relating to the working capital safe harbor, which is applicable to, to cash held by qualified opportunities on businesses. And the last is the expansion of an example in the anti-abuse sections about circular cash flows. The, the first one I'll just kick off is the effective date. When the final regulations came out, there was some, I guess not surprising given our, our, our whole history with this, this roller coaster here, uh, there was some inconsistent language between the preamble and the actual operative language in the regulations about effective dates of the final regulations, and in particular, a taxpayer's ability to rely on the proposed regulations before the final regulations are, are fully effective. The, the final regulations made pretty clear that the final regulations were going to be fully in effect for most taxpayers in calendar, calendar year 2021. And, but before 2021, taxpayers seem to have an ability either in whole or in part to rely on the proposed regulations. But it wasn't really clear whether you had to use an all or nothing approach, meaning you could rely on entirely on the proposed regulations or entirely on the final regulations, or whether you could pick and choose and rely on certain sections of the proposed regulations and certain sections of the final regulations. They kind of mucked up the, 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 the discussion there. And so a lot of people were, we're questioning how to handle that. In the correcting amendments, they did clarify that there is a, this, essentially this pick and choose approach. So for example, if you want to rely on a section of the proposed regulations relating to, for example, the calculation and timing of the investment of a taxpayer's eligible gain into a qualified opportunity fund, you could do that and separately you could rely on the final regulations, the rest of the sections of the final regulations. Uh, and I think that this was welcome news to a lot of taxpayers, especially relating to taxpayers who had 1231 gains. Um, because if you remember the, the rule in the proposed regulations about 1231 gains is that you had to wait until December 31st of the year the gain was triggered to invest the net amount of your 1231 gain. So if you think about a taxpayer that sold an asset, a 1231 asset back in January of 2019, for example, they didn't think that they could invest that until December 31st of 2019. So they may have been waiting all year to invest that gain, and then the final regulations come out and say, oh, no, you can invest it in the 180-day period beginning on the date of sale. So that's an example of a situation where the taxpayer would want to be able to rely on a particular section of the proposed regulations to invest their 1231 gain according to those rules. But they may want to rely on the final regulations for other provisions. Ashley, I don't know if you have any uh, insights into that one or experience with, with some of your, your clients needing that flexibility. Yeah, no, I think that you've summed it up perfectly. And I think that the key is that it's a, the, it eliminated the all or nothing, you know, and 
all or nothing's tough, particularly when you're talking about, you know, stuff as complex as this. So I think it's crucial that people, especially with the timing of when the regulations came out, that they have the flexibility to be able to say, well, no, I was planning on doing this, but then now they can actually, you know, rely on the final reg. So I agree completely with what, with what you said, particularly, you know, how beneficial the all or nothing uh, function of that is. Yeah, yeah. So that that was one that I think you can sort of put in the positive camp in terms of helpful clarifications in the correcting amendment. Ashley, anything else you want to say about that one or should we move on to the next one? Yeah, no, I was just going to say, I think that another positive, you know, one that uh, that they identified was the correction to the safe harbor for working capital, specifically on where working capital is being expended and that QOZB is satisfying the requirement on QOZB business property during the working capital safe harbor, um, you know, even though that it's not actually satisfying its tangible property uh, requirements. And so I, I think it's, I think it's very favorable because it's treated as satisfying it, you know, even though that it doesn't have the 70%. So um, I, I, I was actually very pleased that they ended up bouncing that one out. Right. And specifically because it, you know, eliminates that concern about a zero over zero calculation. And, you know, I know that that was one of the things that was of concern for folks. Yeah. And just for, for any of, of, of Jimmy's listeners who, who aren't familiar with the, the zero over zero, as, as we call it, um, th- this relates to the fact that, you know, a qualified opportunity zone business has to meet a 70% test with respect to its tangible property. At least 70% of the tangible property in a QZB needs to be good qualifying Qualified Opportunity Zone Business Property, QOZBP. Uh, everybody loves the alphabet soup in the land of Oz. Um, and the concern was, well, if in your if early on you don't have any tangible property in your QOZB yet, do you have a zero over zero problem there? Um, and, and so that's the issue that that, that Ashley just mentioned. It, it's interesting because, well, Ashley, I, I certainly agree with you that to the extent that what Treasury was trying to say <laughs> in the correcting amendments was that qualified opportunity zone businesses uh, essentially get a pass on meeting the 70% tangible property test during the working capital safe harbor period. That would be a huge swing, um, and it would take a lot of pressure off of some of the, 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 the delicate structuring issues that a lot of us have been struggling with. Um, I think a lot of practitioners, myself included, um, are, are, are still struggling a bit with the words in the amendments um, because the way that they did it, and I don't want to get too technical. Look at the words on the page very hard. Um, they, it seems like they were, they were trying to get there. Uh, they didn't, frankly, do a very good job of it. <laughs> Um, so I, I do know that a couple of folks at, at some of the big accounting firms are, are pushing to get some clarity from Treasury, uh, if that's really what they meant to do. And just so that, so Jimmy, you and your audience kind of understand some of the, the, the nuances here. In, in one of the new paragraphs that they added in this working capital safe harbor section, on the one hand, they added in the, the, this language that uh, implies that a qualified opportunity zone business meets the requirements of, of p- perhaps the 70% test during a working capital safe harbor period. 
They also added in a sentence that says that working capital assets in the QOZB are not that qualified opportunity zone business property for purposes of the 70% test. So for example, if you have cash in your working capital safe harbor, they basically are saying with this new sentence that you cannot treat that cash as a proxy for the tangible property that you're going to build or construct or improve with it. The cash is basically just out. You do not count it at all in your 70% test. So it's a little bit difficult to square for, for all the, the tax geeks who, who like to dig into the regulations and try and understand what Treasury meant. Um, why on the one hand, they're saying your cash is not gonna be counted as good tangible property. And on the other hand, in the exact same paragraph, you know, if they're saying that your QOZB doesn't even need to worry about meeting its 70% test during the working capital safe harbor period. So that, 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 that's the reason why, why I think some people are struggling to really clarify what Treasury was trying to accomplish. It's almost like uh, they gave us the good with the bad, right? I think that the, right. the key takeaway in that is that you better make sure that you meet the 70% after your working capital safe harbor is done. You're right. And then we can probably argue it out relative to the language and that kind of thing in the meantime. But that is certainly important that it that you definitely have it locked and loaded after the work, working capital safe harbor period. Yeah, I, I think that you're you're absolutely right. So um, you know, e even if we can get some comfort that Treasury is going to give you a little bit of a, a a pass during that initial startup period, you, you, you shouldn't take that for granted. You should make sure that you're doing everything that you need to do to make sure that at the end of it, you can pass your 70% test without any issues. Absolutely. Should we move on to to the last one, the circular cash flow example? We've discussed the top two, right? The the updates in terms of effective date provisions, and and then we just discussed changes to working capital safe harbor language. And there's a there's a third big one, Jessica, that I know you wanted to get to. So so please go ahead. Right, real fast before you hit that big one, there's a little one that was kind of snuck in there that uh, that they allowed a they corrected the cure provision and basically said that for each QOZB that you have inside of a QOF, you have a cure period for each one of those QOZBs. But I. I that's great because we're kind of wondering about that, but that's a minor one compared to what you're talking about. So hit us with the circular cash flow, Jessica. <laughs> yeah, so this one, they to, to set the stage a little bit, in order for property to be good property in the hands of a, a QOF or a QZB, one of the requirements is that the property needs to have been acquired by purchase from an unrelated party. And they set the related party threshold here at 20%. So that means that the buyer and the seller cannot have more than 20% overlapping ownership. And a lot of people were, were looking at that related party requirement and trying to, to structure transactions, keeping that in mind, obviously, so as not to run afoul of it. And you ran into what I, at least was a fairly common fact pattern with respect to some of, some of um, my clients and contacts and other people I spoke with, is if you had an existing owner of property um, in an opportunity zone, um, and they wanted to develop it, and they wanted to be able to develop it through an opportunity zone structure, the question was, well, could they sell it to the QOZB, trigger gain from the sale, and then reinvest the proceeds from the sale into a qualified opportunity fund that then invested back into that QOZB. 
And on the one hand, you have this 20% related party test, which seems to imply, well, look, if you if you are on the uh, on the right side of the line in terms of the numbers, right? If you don't have, if that seller does not come back in and end up owning more than owning more than 20% of the new structure, then you're in compliance with the related party rule, rule requirement, and so you should be all good. <laughs> And in the when the final regulations were released back in December of 2019, there was some language in the preamble where Treasury was responding to a comment they'd, that they'd received asking about this particular fact pattern, where a seller reinvests gain back into the deal. And the Treasury came out in the preamble, and they, they said that those structures, to the extent that circular cash flow principles and the step transaction doctrine would be implicated that that would be a, an abusive situation. And then they put some language actually into the regulations themselves. They included a, a new example uh, in the anti-abuse section. Um, and again, this was all back in December with the final regulations. And in that example, in the final regulations, they had a situation where a seller sold property triggered a gain and pursuant to a plan reinvested that gain into a qualified opportunity fund that invested back into the project. And in that example that was included in the December 2019 final regulations, the seller had a plan to reinvest in a manner that would cause the seller to become a related party, so more than 20%. So again, a lot of practitioners looked at that and, and started scratching their heads and say, well, the, the preamble seemed uh, perhaps a little bit harsher, but the example really indicates that they're, maybe they're only concerned with a reinvestment of more than 20%. And I guess enough people called Treasury or the IRS to, to, to ask about exactly what they meant by this, that Treasury took the opportunity with these correcting amendments to, to expand upon that example. And what they did is they, they, they expanded the example and they added a new uh, they added some new language about the step transaction doctrine and circular cash flows. And they said, um, and by the way, uh, this would still be problematic even if the seller reinvests in a manner that would cause the seller not to be a related party. So meaning if you had a less than 20% reinvestment, you'd still be caught up in this example. Now, if you're caught up in this example, two bad things happen. The first bad thing that happens is that the seller who reinvested gain into a qualified opportunity fund is treated as not actually having that eligible gain to invest because the recharacterization of this transaction is that instead of selling the property and triggering a gain and reinvesting the gain, the seller is treated as having contributed at least a portion of the property down into the Qualified Opportunity Fund in exchange for an interest in the Qualified Opportunity Fund. And then the Qualified Opportunity Fund is treated as having contributed the property down to the QZB. So as I said, in the first instance, the reinvesting seller ceases to have an eligible QOF investment because they didn't actually put gain in. The second bad thing that happens is that all of that property, even if you know 80% plus of a plus of the property was really treated as having been acquired by purchase, you would think um, loses its status as having been acquired by purchase. If there is even a small de minimis portion of the property that is characterized as having been contributed pursuant to the recharacterization, 
then all of the property is bad, which is arguably unfair and unjust to the investors that really contributed eligible gain into the structure and thought they were uh, the QZB was going to use that cash to acquire the property. So, you know, for whatever reason, Treasury and the IRS really do not like these reinvestment structures. The the thing that gets a little bit nuanced, which we probably can't go into too much depth on, on during this call, is the step transaction doctrine and, and what that's really all about and when you'll be implicated by it and when you won't be. But if you're considering a, a structure involving the seller of the property, tread very carefully and make sure that you kind of talk that through with someone who is well-versed in the step transaction doctrine and those issues and how to navigate them. Yeah, th- thanks Thanks for all the clarifications there, Jessica. Ashley, I know you have plenty to say about circular cash flow. Uh, what, 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 are some of your, what are some of your thoughts here? Well, it'd be interesting, you know, to run an analysis on if the if they weren't actually reinvest if they they weren't reinvesting proceeds from the sale of that piece of property, could they invest outside money into it, and would that you know be violative, right? So if the seller had cash from a different transaction, could they at that point do the deal? I think that the Jessica's correct that at the end of the day, you really got to take a look at exactly the details of what your transaction looks like to make sure you don't run afoul of it. You know, this is kind of the the double unfortunate piece about the final regs is that everything in the final regs or almost everything in the final regs was great until we got to this part about related parties in the step transaction piece where it kind of cut out sellers from being able to participate in the upside of a deal. It was, you know, and it was kind of unfortunate and there was lots of feedback on that and lots of questions. And then, you know, the, the clarifications that came out, came out and it was almost like it would, it made it worse. And so this is kind of along those lines of like, it's like, man, that's a bummer because there could have been lots of ways that you could have creatively done this. And I think not violated the spirit of the rule, right. Or what they're trying to accomplish, but unfortunately, the additional kind of classification relative to that step transaction piece just further exacerbates the problem. Right, right. So, so those are three of the biggest issues that, that the two of you identified in the correcting amendments. Ashley, you snuck in a fourth one there with the cure right being applicable for each trader business under the QOF. Uh, question I'd like to pose to both of you, what does this all mean really for just the average qualified opportunity fund participant, whether it's the fund manager or an investor or a developer receiving funds for their deals? What is the end result here? What's the big takeaway? I think that to Jessica's point that if you're dealing with a seller, that you got to be really careful about that transaction and that more than likely you're probably going to end up in some kind of ground lease transaction in order to make it work. I think that as a lion's share of what we're talking about, that it just kind of confirmed and it gave more more the practitioners comfort right relative to some of the head scratching that was going on to you know in you know some of the nuanced conversations about structures gave them you know substantially more comfort you know i think that as well is that one of the things that and this was kind of a minor change relative to the timing of it and as to whether or not this was intended to change but they changed receive up to and they replaced it with receive not more than relative to the 24 months of additional time uh, for a governmental, uh, you know, for something outside of their control or if they were in a a disaster. 
and based upon the you know the presidential declaration that the whole United States are under a disaster area, arguably that QOZBs that are executing a working capital safe harbor during the COVID crisis, they you know I think that there's an argument that they get 24 months to uh, an additional 24 months to affect that working capital safe harbor plan. And Jessica, I'd be interested to hear your take relative to like kind of true impact that this is going to have on QOFs and fund managers. But I think that a lot of it kind of more goes to the practitioners. Yeah, I think that you're, I think that you're probably right, Ashley, because aside from the circular cash flow language that, that we've discussed, for the most part, all of the other clarifications were, were, were helpful, I think, it, just in terms of things that, that they clearly got wrong and that they needed to fix, and certainly the, the effective date and the reliance provisions. The one thing that I, I'm really hopeful that we will get additional clarity out of Treasury on is this working capital safe harbor and 70% test issue that, that we discussed. Just a one kind of practical note for for anybody setting up a qualified opportunity fund or, or sort of having a QOZB underway with respect to this 24-month possible extension that Ashley mentioned. The the regulations do say that you know you can get um, I guess they changed it now to uh, essentially you can get up to or not more than 24 months, but you should make sure that you are documenting any actual delays that are caused by the current COVID-19 coronavirus pandemic. Because if you look at the language in the preamble surrounding that 24-month extension of the working capital safe harbor period, the language in the preamble is a little bit different from the language in the actual regulations and talks about getting that extra time if there are delays attributable to uh, a federal disaster. So it may not be that everybody poof gets an automatic 24 months no matter what. You yeah, that's a good point. Actually, you may need to actually show how your project was delayed. And this isn't just government applications in terms of the, the, the normal tolling periods. This could be anything. This could be, well, my, my law firm shut down or my architecture firm closed and everybody was working from home or the site was shut or it was locked down and nobody could get there. You know, all of those things which go towards actually delaying your project, which I'm sure virtually every opportunity zone project across the country is experiencing right now, just keep very, very good records um, and make sure that you have that in case you ever need to show it to the IRS. Yeah, great, great points, Jessica. Uh, thank you for, for clarifying that. Well, uh, both of you, this conversation has been very insightful. Jessica Malay and Ashley Tyson, thank you both for joining me today and helping to distill these correcting amendments for our audience and <laughs> making it uh, as easy to understand as possible. Uh, before we go, could each of you tell our listeners where they can go to learn more about you? And Jessica, I'll let you go first. How can our listeners learn more about you and Duval and Stackenfeld? Sure. Uh, so the best place to go, of course, is our website. Uh, it's DS llp.com uh, and you'll find there the links to our Opportunity Zone webpage which has a number of resources including uh, you know, roadmaps and white papers and, and all of that. So we are, we are happy to share uh, whatever knowledge that we have. The, the land of Oz can be a little bit confusing at times uh, and I just encourage anybody to reach out if they have questions or want to chat through any of their projects. Land of Oz, and, and Jessica is known uh, internally, at least at Duval and Stackenfeld, as the Wizard of Oz also, so she's she's very sharp about this, and we appreciate your insights today, Jessica. Thank you. And and Ashley, uh, where, where can our listeners go to learn more about you and OZ Pros? Yeah, at uh, www.ozpros.com, 
and we've got lots of information on that site, uh, a couple of videos and, uh, and different things there, and also uh, in ability to be able to just click on there and schedule a call. So look forward to talking with anybody about these specifics or just kind of general uh, OZ strategies or any kind of questions that you have from structuring to potential issues. Would love to, uh, would love to talk and continue our conversations with as many people as we can. Perfect. Thank you. And for our listeners out there today, I will have show notes for this episode on the Opportunity Zones database website. You can find those show notes at opportunitydb.com slash podcast. And there you'll find links to all of the resources that Jessica, Ashley, and I discussed on today's show. And I'll be sure, of course, to link to the full text of the correcting amendments, although I wouldn't recommend reading them necessarily. That's why we've got Jessica and Ashley here. So, hey, uh, again, Jessica and Ashley, thanks, thanks so much for your time today. Appreciate it. Of course. Happy to help out. My pleasure, Jimmy. That's it for our show today. A huge thank you to you, our listener. If you liked this episode, please rate and review us on iTunes. The Opportunity Zones podcast is produced by the Opportunity Database. Visit OpportunityDB.com to learn more about Opportunity Zones and Opportunity Zone Fund investing. You can learn how to subscribe to this podcast and read more about today's guest in the show notes by visiting OpportunityDB.com slash podcast. And we'll be back soon with another episode.